Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this podcast episode of Renewing Classical Education. In this particular episode, I want to talk about John Henry Newman and his view of education. Now, I have written about this, and you can find my writings on ChristopherPerrin.substack.com, and also some of these lectures are on ClassicalU.com. But thanks for either watching or listening. Some of you have heard of John Henry Newman, or Cardinal Newman as he's often called. Those of you seeking to renew the classical tradition of education no doubt have come across his name. And some of you have read through at least some of his famous book, parts of his famous book, The Idea of a University. This is a book and writer that should not be ignored. To understand the state of classical education in the Victorian era, his, when classical education was beginning to falter and diminish, Newman must be read. He's a bright light seeking to illuminate and preserve the classical tradition of education at a time when a great fog was rolling in, a time when a secular paradigm for learning was ascendant, a time when the value of studying classical languages, literature, and theology was being questioned and sometimes even mocked. Newman held forth the flame and not only defended the tradition but managed to brilliantly restate it for his own time and to extend it. Newman was born in 1801 in London. He went to Oxford University at the age of 16, and after graduating, he became a tutor at one of the colleges there, Oriel College. While serving as a tutor, he was also ordained as a priest in the Church of England and served as the vicar at St. Mary's, the beautiful church, Anglican church there in Oxford. He and several other colleagues at Oxford became concerned with the ways they perceived the Anglican Church at that time to be drifting from its more liturgical and sacramental aspects and began to call for a return to traditional liturgies and practices that resembled those of the Roman Catholic Church. This renewal movement became known as the Oxford Movement and was described as Anglo-Catholic. Newman was the chief writer of many small pamphlets or tracts arguing for this high church renewal. And in 1845, Newman was received into the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1879, he was appointed a cardinal in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, at the age of 78. When Newman was asked to found a new Catholic university in Ireland, he delivered a series of nine lectures in Dublin that were then collected and published in his book, The Idea of a University, in 1852. This was about the same time, well, 1872, that Nietzsche was railing against the deterioration of the German university system, which he thought was being destroyed by what he called a micrological pedantry. That's Nietzsche. Newman argues for traditional liberal education, that instead of seeking hyper-specialized knowledge, according to the German paradigm, sought rather to master the studium generale, which he translated as the school of universal learning. Newman is known for his writing about what he calls the perfection of the intellect. For Newman, a liberal education was its own reward, valuable for its own sake, and befitting someone who would truly be free. For Newman, education was the cultivation or perfection, that is, the full development of the intellect, the true enlargement of the mind, he writes, and the power of viewing many things at once. 
He's truly eloquent on this point, offering not just a restatement of the ancient Greek ideal, but revivifying it, in my opinion. So I want to quote him somewhat at length. You're going to enjoy this. I'm going to quote him so that you can get a sense not only of his thought, but of his eloquence. How many people today can write like this? Here's Newman. Now, some of the vocabulary he's going to use is going to be difficult, but here he is. To have even a portion of this illuminative reason and true philosophy is the highest state to which nature can aspire in the way of intellect. It puts the mind above the influences of chance and necessity, above anxiety, suspense, unsettlement, and superstition, which is the lot of the many. Men whose minds are possessed with some object take exaggerated views of its importance, are feverish in the pursuit of it, make it the measure of things which are utterly foreign to it, and are startled and despond if it happens to fail them. They are ever in alarm or in transport. Those, on the other hand, who have no object or principle whatever to hold by, lose their way every step they take. They are thrown out and do not know what to think or say at every fresh juncture. They have no view of persons or occurrences or facts which come suddenly upon them, and they hang upon the opinion of others for want of internal resources. But the intellect, which has been disciplined to the perfection of its powers, which knows and thinks while it knows, which has learned to leaven the dense mass of facts and events with the elastic force of reason, such an intellect cannot be partial, cannot be exclusive, cannot be impetuous, cannot be at a loss, cannot be but patient, collected, and majestically calm, because it discerns the end in every beginning, the origin in every end, the law in every interruption, the limit in each delay, because it ever knows where it stands and how its path lies from one point to another. It is of the peripatetic and has the nil admirare, nothing to surprise, the nothing-to-surprise posture of the Stoic. And then he quotes the Latin, Felix qui potuit rerem cognoscere causus. Now, we have to translate it, but in his day, this Latin didn't have to be translated. Happy is he who can understand the causes of things. The Latin again, Felix qui potuit rerem cognoscere causus. And he goes on, Autique metus omnes, et inexorabile fatum, and the fear and the inexorable fate of all, meaning death, subjecit pedibus streptumque acerontis avari, he throws underfoot with the din of the greedy Acheron River. So in English again, that is, happy is he who understands the causes of things, and the fear and the inexorable fate of all he throws underfoot with the din of the greedy Acheron River. There are men, he writes, who in difficulties originate at the moment vast ideas or dazzling projects, who under the influence of excitement are able to cast a light, almost as if from inspiration, on a subject or course of action which comes before them. 
who have a sudden presence of mind equal to any emergency, rising with the occasion, and an undaunted, magnanimous bearing, and an energy and keenness which is but made intense by opposition. I just have to stop here for a moment. He's talking about a different kind of intellect, a mature, perfected intellect. And the people who have this intellect are these men who, in difficulties, originate at the moment vast ideas or dazzling projects. So in the midst of difficulties, great things come, who under the influence of excitement are able to cast a light, almost as from inspiration, on a subject or a course of action which comes before them, who have a sudden presence of mind equal to any emergency. This deserves commentary all the way through, but I I, I need to resist the temptation to do that. Let me keep reading. Who have a sudden presence of mind equal to any temptation, any emergency, rising with the occasion, and an undaunted magnanimous bearing, and an energy and keenness which is but made intense by opposition. This is genius. This is heroism. It is the exhibition of a natural gift which no culture can teach, at which no institution can aim. Here, on the contrary, we are concerned not with mere nature, but with training and teaching. That perfection of the intellect, which is the result of education and its beau ideal or beautiful ideal, to be imparted to individuals in their respective measures, is the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things, as far as the finite mind can embrace them, each in its place and with its own characteristics upon it. It is almost prophetic from its knowledge of history. It is almost heart-searching from its knowledge of human nature. It has almost supernatural charity from its freedom from littleness and prejudice. It has almost the repose of faith because nothing can startle it. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. So intimate is it with the eternal order of things and the music of the spheres. Wow. Who can write about education that way today? I think I can safely say that nearly no one speaks this way today about education. To our ears, that phrase, the perfection of the intellect, is masked by the din of the Acheron River, the river of the underworld, signaling our coming demise or death. Or it's masked by the yelps and hurrahs of our current carnival culture with its ubiquitous distractions. What's worse, we don't even know what the words perfection and intellect mean as Newman uses them. To tell an 18-year-old student that we seek the perfection of his intellect, is like telling him that we think he should develop his cognitive capacities. Bleh. Newman was able to restate and revivify the classical tradition in the middle of the 19th century, and he continued the great conversation about education. Who will do this in the 21st century? I will leave you with one more distinctive emphasis found in Newman. Education is essentially a relationship, a friendship between student and teacher, making a university a vibrant community of learning. 
When we talk of education as the cultivation of virtue, we are certainly echoing Newman, who was restating the great thinkers that came before him. And when we talk of education as community, we're also echoing Newman. Students learn from teachers and colleagues. Humans, he thinks, are compelled by nature to engage in what he calls mutual education. We can't help but to share knowledge and educate one another. The university is one evolved and grand way that we do this. It is a place, quote, for the communion and circulation of thought by means of personal intercourse, close quote. While the university may represent a pinnacle of learning, he argues by way of illustration that similar kinds of university education exist in the education of a gentleman, a politician, a scientist, a city dweller, and a catechized Christian. So he writes, Many cannot live by books alone. Newman loves books, but he regards those capable of writing books to be best at cultivating wisdom and securing an education. Why not just read the great books? Newman's answer, why not study personally with the authors, authors who are writing at least good books? Why not become an academic disciple of one such person? If you could study with the man and not just his books, wouldn't you do so? Newman also writes about the limits of the self-taught man or the autodidact. This man-to-man personal intercourse that we've just been reading about, Newman calls a rival method, a method that rivals the mere reading of books. Now, reading great books is important, but he says we need people, we need colleagues, we need teachers in the flesh. So it's a method that rivals the mere reading of books and all attempts to become a self-educated man or woman. While we admire those who have read many books and studied on their own, we instinctively know that a full education requires a relationship with a master. Christ said as much when he said that a student is not above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. That's Luke 6.40. Newman says the same when he argues that the life of a study which makes it live in us, you must catch from those in whom it lives already. And we must come to the teachers of wisdom to learn wisdom. We must come to the teachers themselves. Haven't we all known a self-educated man or woman who lacked that deeper living wisdom found in those who had been tutored by a virtuoso? Don't many of us lament that while we have learned from our private reading, we long for a person who embodied those books and their wisdom and could better guide and lead us? And teach us? Over 150 years ago, Newman makes a case against online learning and internet research as being sufficient, anyway, for a full education. Certainly, it can help. He notes the same objection we hear today from advocates of a holy online education. Why, you will ask, need we go up to knowledge when knowledge will come down to us? That's a quote from Newman. His humorous description of the profusion of print, referring to books and pamphlets and journal articles, is similar to the contemporary laments of the profusion of distracting digital devices that have nearly replaced our real lives with virtual ones. No doubt, Newman today would exhort us to put down our smartphones and actually converse with one another face-to-face, student-to-teacher, disciple-to-master. This is Newman's rival method 
the oral tradition. Newman raises for us this question, why have we come to college? What is it we seek at college? Most likely students enroll in college for several reasons, to explore new subjects, enjoy new friendships and community, prepare for a working career, to grow in wisdom. Of these good goals, should any be chief among them? For his part, Newman privileges the communal cultivation of wisdom and knowledge as the chief purpose or idea of a university. The word university means from the Latin turned into one, folded into one, such that many various parts might come together in a unity. It's similar to our word college that's derived from the Latin collegere, which means to gather. Think of the word collection. A college is a gathering of scholars and students who come together in a unity qualified by excellence in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Newman mentions that universities have a kind of gravitational pull, don't they, despite their rising costs? We still say today that as as much as college tuition has outpaced inflation, it's still a good investment. That doesn't mean I'm proud or happy about the inflated costs of tuition, but he, uh, he agrees with us that it has a gravitational pull, attracting excellent thought, scholarship, and interchange. If true, this means it's a great honor to attend a university and associate with such excellence with a fair chance that we might acquire some small quantity of excellence ourselves. In fact, Newman says that excellence implies a center. Perhaps he was thinking of the Latin root for excel, for the word is excelere, which means to rise up high or to tower. Universities and colleges are known for their high towers that symbolize at once the quest for knowledge and wisdom, the reach for greatness, and the call for us all to gather and seek together. For many of us, it was at college that we grew up. Well, for further reading, you might consider Newman's The Idea of a University. Uh, You can also find uh, a brief essay that's similar to that in the Harvard Classics, Volume 28, The Office and Work of Universities, Harvard Classics, Volume 28. I also think you'll enjoy The Liberal Arts Tradition, The Philosophy of Christian Classical Education by Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain. I think it's the best 21st century book currently on, on the market that defines and explains the tradition of classical education. I want to thank you for listening. Once again, you can find more of my lectures and talks, etc., and articles on christopherperrin.substack.com and also at classicalu.com. I really appreciate your attention. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CP Show. Thanks again for listening or watching. Mm-hmm.